Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm uh, Tanner Wade, the vicar here at St. Paul's. We're so happy to have you with us this morning in our uh, Sunday Bible class. A special welcome to those who are listening in the St. Louis area on AM 850 KFUO and those listening around the world on KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we'll be looking at the lessons, the assigned scripture lessons for next week, which just so happens to be Palm Sunday. So we have a great opportunity today to take a look at those Palm Sunday assigned readings. A reminder for those of you who are in the gym here, we do have handouts over by that Bible rack to my left on the bleachers there. Uh, And before we begin, let's just have a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today as your humble servants. As we reflect on Christ's triumphant yet humble entry into Jerusalem and the start of Holy Week, let us always keep in mind the great sacrifice and cost that Jesus paid on the cross so that we have the right to be called your children. Let all that we do, both here at St. Paul's and in our week, be done not to the glory of ourselves, but to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So one of the things I'm really going to try and stress today is it's important to understand the context in which the events of Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry, are happening. So if you look at your handout, the gospel lesson is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. But I'm going to start us at John chapter 1, and I'll just read here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the, poor, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the la- large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So before we even get to the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we need to remember that the events that we're about to go through in our text occur almost directly after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And John, in verse 11, that last verse, reminds us that on account of him, that is Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, because they could see that this man who they knew died was now alive, On account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, the reason I started with that is because our text, starting at verse 12, uh, reads, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever we have an assigned reading, it starts with the next day. I always am the one to ask, well, what happened on the previous day? So that's why I gave you guys a little bit of uh, a background there. And as we read, this crowd comes to not only see Jesus, but Lazarus. We read in verse uh, 13, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, if you've been looking at our lectionary readings or remember what we've gone through, uh, this year is year C in the three-year lectionary. The primary gospel in that year is Luke. 
So it may strike you as a little odd that we use John every Sunday for Palm Sunday. And it struck me as a little odd, and I was trying to think, well, why, why do we do that? We have the triumphant entry in all four of the Gospels. It's not like it's only in John. Well, then I remembered something. Well, we call it Palm Sunday, and John is the only Gospel to specifically use the word palm to describe the branches. Now, it does not mean that the other Gospels thought it was a different uh, tree branch. Uh, in fact, uh, Matthew says that most people lay down cloaks, but some cut branches. Mark reads that uh, some lay down cloaks and some lay down leafy branches. And then Luke is the only gospel that mentions just cloaks being laid down as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on the colt. Now, it's a little interesting that John is the only one to use the word palm. And it's actually a very specific palm, and in the Greek, it's a word that we're already familiar with in English, though you probably never thought about it in a palm tree. But the literal word for palm in the Greek is phoenix. And there's some debate whether or not it got that name in the Greek because of the bird from both Greek, Roman, and Egyptian mythology, or if it was given that name uh, because of the Phoenicians who had lived nearby where palms were plentiful. But specifically, this would have been a Judean palm. And Judean palms were a strong image of Judean culture. They were on its coins as a national image. It was renowned across the first century, the known world in the first century, for its fruit, its date fruit. So these were a date palm branch. And one interesting thing I learned was it was extinct for almost 1,500 years. Now you might be thinking, well, how can something go extinct for 1,500 years and it's no longer extinct? I actually found in doing some research that uh, in the mid-2000s, during excavation work in Israel, someone found a jar in one of the palaces in a hidden room that had seeds. And it turned out these seeds were Judean date palm seeds. And so, uh, a few years later, after they'd studied them, they thought they might be able to reproduce or use these seeds to still produce uh, this Judean palm tree that we read of in our text. And sure enough, one of the three seeds that they planted did grow, and it's currently today in Israel as the only Judean palm tree, and is uh, it's the longest gap between any sort of uh, extinction of any sort of, I guess, tree species. Uh, that has ever been brought out of extinction. Now, there's only one, so I don't know how hopeful the future of the Judean date palm is, but uh, appropriately, they named him Methuselah, or it, I guess, Methuselah, and that sits in Israel today. Now, that's a little off track, but I did find that fairly interesting, that when John mentions this phoenix branch, this palm, date palm, specific Judean date palm branch, he's mentioning something that is very uh, specific, to the Jews and their culture, something that everyone would have associated with that region, a, a spot of pride for the people. And we read in verse 13 that they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now that uh, Hosanna, you will cover in just a little bit and explain a little more in our psalm, it actually comes from Psalm 118, but I don't want you to think I'm skipping over it, but rather we're going to come back around to that uh, in just a little bit. Uh, we continue in verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is sitting on a donkey's colt. Now that's what they... Uh, Proclaim what John remembers, and he makes it clear in the next verse that the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remember these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That comes from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, 
And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on that Zechariah passage is because it's often something we may skip over. We trust that there, uh, when John says that it was prophesied, that it comes from the Old Testament. But specifically, this chapter of Zechariah is all about the Messiah's future triumph over his enemies. Now, those who were in Israel, when Jesus came in on a cult, would have been thinking this is a clear sign, not just because this is written, but this is how Israelite kings, the kings of the Jews, this is how they were paraded on a cult or a donkey. And it was opposite of what a Roman general, those who had just conquered Israel, those who were the oppressors of Israel in the first century, what they would have done. They came in on their grandest, largest horse. They did not come in on a simple donkey, something we even recognize today is a beast of burden, a work animal, not exactly your prized, stable possession. And this begins to establish a very important part of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. But it's Christ's humility. And we'll see when we get to our epistle lesson, uh, Paul talk about this a little bit more. But you can imagine that these people who have heard that this man has just raised someone from the dead and then came to double check it, and sure enough, Lazarus is there eating with Jesus, and those ran and told their neighbors about it back in Jerusalem and that he's coming to them, they're getting ready to celebrate. They're getting ready for a party. They're ecstatic. And when Jesus comes in on a donkey, they're thinking, well, this is it. This is the moment we have all been waiting for. This is what the prophets foretold. And guess what? We're oppressed right now. This is perfect. Rome, get ready to pack your bags because our king has arrived. And yet, it doesn't mention in any gospel, but I have to wonder what Jesus is thinking as he sees them celebrate this, knowing what the true victory is going to be, knowing why we can call uh, that next Friday of Holy Week Good Friday, knowing that what is actually going to happen is very much what the prophets prophesied, but not at all what the people are thinking, those in the streets laying down cloaks and palm branches for the donkey to walk across. We continue in our gospel at uh, verse 17. The crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And this is an important point as we think about Holy Week. Imagine if you had heard that in Creve Coeur, just on the other side of uh, the 64 or Highway 40, as those from St. Louis call it, uh, you heard that someone had raised someone from the dead, and so you drove down there and you heard that he's eating lunch at a Chipotle or a McDonald's there with the guy that supposedly raised him from the dead, you would maybe be inclined to go check this out and see what this was all about. And then when you saw that very thing, you'd probably drive back, maybe not to here, but maybe to your homes. It'd probably come up as a topic of conversation that night, or even with your neighbors if they ask you what was going on. And especially if you thought this was the one who would set you free from all your enemies, who you actively were not only fighting against, but had lost to, and who were constantly oppressing you. So Jerusalem was very much aware of what was happening the crowd that had gone up to see Lazarus eating with Jesus is going to be very vocal and active when they return to Jerusalem. And we continue with verse 18. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And in 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, in the Pharisees' mind, this was merely a power struggle. This was going to be who ideas are the people going to follow? Our ideas or this man who apparently has raised someone from the dead? The one who has kind of the guts to come into Jerusalem riding in on a donkey who lets the people say to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that Hosanna in the Hebrew, it literally means translated into English, Lord, save us, or save us, dear God, we pray. They're clearly indicating that this is the guy. And so sometimes when we think about Palm Sunday and we think of our celebration of it, we can sometimes separate that first century context from the actual uh, day in the church here. And rightfully so, we are very excited for Easter to be right around the corner. I mean, that's one of the great parts about Palm Sunday. As you know, Easter is just one day away. But Palm Sunday itself is a very, would have been extremely memorable for those who were in first century Jerusalem. Just another kind of note here on the gospel before we move on to the epistle, uh, and I take some questions. I found in the Lutheran Study Bible, in the notes, it said that John tends to use many ethnic or regional designations, including Greeks, Romans, Galileans, Samaritans, and Judeans. Why do I bring that up? Well, this explains why John specifically mentions the Phoenix branch, that date palm branch. John often will use the specific name. A lot of times if you might ask somebody, well, it's only in one of the four Gospels. How do we know that this is what it is, that it's truly a palm? Why don't we just have it called like Branch Sunday? And in fact, in some cultures where palm leaves are not accessible, they do sometimes use alternative names for the Sunday. But the reason why John is so specific here is not to be different than the other Gospels, but rather it's simply a further level of specification. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, well, Matthew and Mark, who mentioned the leafy branches or just branches, they're not concerned with the fact it was the Judean date palm. But for John, he clearly understands this has a very significant implication for the people to be laying down a symbol of their national pride, something they were renowned for doing. And to his hearers, they would have understood right away, this is what you do when a king enters the city. So with that, I'll take any, does anyone have any questions on our gospel lesson before we move on to the epistle? No questions? Okay. Um, our epistle is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And I talked a little bit about how uh, we were going to see the humble nature of this triumphant entry. Oftentimes when we think of something being triumphant, if you've seen a baseball player hit a walk-off home run, you know when they get to home, it's not a humble celebration that begins. Usually bubble gum and water and everything else gets poured on top of them and they all jump up and down, right? We often consider triumph to be something that you boast about. We don't necessarily think of triumph as humbling yourself but rather making yourself more known would be kind of what we would expect when someone is about to triumph. So starting at verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, for Paul, and the reason why this epistle is included with our Palm Sunday readings, the focus is on who Christ is. What does this say about Christ, this triumphant entry? 
Well, one, it says that he fulfills the prophecy that we heard from the prophet Zechariah. But two, it's a great reminder of the true humility that Christ had in going to the cross. As people are celebrating his arrival, thinking, well, this guy raised someone from the dead. I can't wait to see what he does to someone he doesn't like. And yet, Christ knows the great sacrifice that's going to have to occur in order for this to be a triumphant entry. In order for this to be the thing in which the people cling their hope upon. That when they say, God save us by saying Hosanna, he knows what that means. It doesn't mean he snaps his finger and the Roman Empire leaves Jerusalem, but he knows that those very same people who when frustrated because he doesn't snap his fingers and tell the Romans to get out of Jerusalem, they're going to want him to be dead. And there's a great sense of irony there that these people don't realize what's going on. And you can't really blame them for not realizing what's going on. Everything they knew about the Old Testament Everything they thought, everything they had been taught said, this is going to be a great day for the people of Israel. In fact, this is going to be a great day for the world. I can't wait to see what this guy is going to do. And this humility becomes even more evident as we continue reading in Philippians. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul starts this by saying that Christ emptied himself and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather took on the form of a sermon of a servant, sorry, and being found in human form, humbled himself. And it's almost like an old vaudevillian comedy thing. Well, how humble was he, Paul? Well, he was even humble unto death, even death on a cross. But it's interesting if you look at this epistle lesson how it turns. Paul reminds the people that Christ was humble unto death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And here you can see that reversal in tone. Paul reminds his hearers that Jesus was humble even unto death. And therefore... He is exalted above all names. And he just switches it right away. And that because of Christ's humility, there is true triumph. Such triumph that, in fact, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, this highlights kind of the reversal of what you would expect when you think of something being a triumphant entry. That while these people were praising Jesus as he rides down the street on the donkey, he's actually humbling himself. I don't know about you, but I imagine if I had 1,500 people or so, give or take a couple hundred, cheering for me as I rode into some town on a donkey, I'd be pretty, pretty hard to be humble, wouldn't it? Might get a little tough, but obviously we know that Christ is not a sinner like us. That Christ, although he was tempted, did not give in to temptation. And Christ truly would be triumphant in his humility. I said at the start of uh, the class today that context is an important thing to remember when looking at the lessons for Palm Sunday. And so, and I want to look at Philippians 2, the first four verses, right before verse 5. And it kind of shows why Paul maybe brought Christ's humility into focus in this section of Philippians. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to repeat verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it strikes me as we think about Palm Sunday, when the crowd in Jerusalem thought that they should be thinking of Jesus more significantly than anyone else, that Jesus, his mind is on counting all others as more significant than himself. That he knows that in order for everyone else to be able to have life, for them to be able to have any hope at all, he's going to have to humble himself unto death, even death on a cross. And Paul's reminder to his readers is that it is Christ's humility that we emulate. You know, this is not just something that we say so that we can maybe feel better about ourselves, but rather because Christ led this example with his very life, that he truly was the most humble servant of all, and that through his humble service, through God's work, we were given everything. And so now that you have eternal life, be humble, just as Christ was humble. Do we have any questions on the epistle reading? Yes. That's a, that's a great question. So the question for those listening uh, on the radio was, what does real humility look like in, on an everyday um, basis? That sometimes people can, uh, there's a phrase that I'm sure some of you or most of you know, it's called a humble brag. That in being humble, you're actually promoting yourself. You know, look how humble I was. Oh, this was so great of me to do. Um, and obviously something like that is not true humility. But in everyday life, uh, I think the reminder that Paul gives us in verse uh, 3 and 4, uh, doing nothing out of ambition, selfish ambition, or conceit, but count others more significant than yourself. If you're doing something in order, if you're doing something uh, which appears humble, in order that you may be recognized as humble, and that's the only reason you're doing it, well, then you've missed the whole point of humility altogether. Now, that looks very different for every person. We have different family situations, different uh, employment situations. Some of us are self-employed. Some of us work in large companies. Some of us work maybe in a small business. And so there's not one exact um, thing to do rather than kind of state that generalization that you count others as more significant than yourself. And in verse 4, Paul reminds us, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That can be as simple as holding a door open when you see someone's carrying, trying to carry something through the door. It can be as simple as saying good morning or asking someone how they're doing and then actually like mean it if they say, well, you know, I'm not doing okay. Okay, great, bye. No, actually seeing uh, how someone is doing. There's lots of ways in daily life with people we interact with um, from the people we see the most, spouses, children, parents, to those we only see maybe once or twice a year. There are all kinds of things we can do to show humility, and it all centers around looking or counting others more significantly than yourselves and not looking to your own interest alone, but also to the interests of others. 
It, it's funny how we sometimes, uh, even in today's world, we emphasize the importance of looking out for your own interest. You know, we may not say it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world anymore, or that might not be quite the phrase that's used, but we'll say things like, I just need a little bit of me time, right? Or I need, a, I need to focus on getting myself right first, then I can worry about other people's problems. Well, there is an element to that, right? You do not want to... Uh, you have to be healthy, both spiritually, physically, emotionally. Um, however, there is an element where even in society, it's expected that you look after your own interests first and foremost, and then only if it maybe is convenient and you have the time and the resources, you might also look to the interest of others. And I think what Paul's reminding us and what uh, the example we see in the triumphant entry in Christ is that true humility actively seeks out how it can help others first. Now, if I was to say I'm, you know, great at that with a 100% success record, I'd be lying. Every one of us suffers from the sins of pride, and every single one of us can think of moments where we probably should have maybe helped someone else before taking care of ourselves. but it was easier to just take care of ourselves first, numero uno, and then maybe see if we have time for others. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to look to see how we can serve others. And Paul's reminder is it's not on account of your own, um, you know, earning something for yourself. That's that selfish ambition or conceit. But rather it's on account of Christ who humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross, in order that you would have the right to be called God's child, that your sins would be forgiven. And it's a striking reminder that really the sacrifices and the service, the humble service we give to others, pales in comparison to Christ's humble service for us, especially as we think about entering Holy Week on Palm Sunday and what's going to happen on Good Friday. So I hope that kind of answered your question. Uh, do we have any other questions on? Yes. Yeah, that's a great comment, Don. Uh, what Don said was the end of uh, our lesson, verses 10 and 11, that so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, that ending's a great comfort. You know, that's not a question mark, like maybe, you know, perhaps this is happening. No, this is what's going to happen, that every knee will bow. And there'll be nothing but confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord on the final day and the second coming. And it is a great comfort to know that that's simply a fact. And Paul treats it as a fact. And for us who are Christians, we take comfort in knowing that Christ has forgiven our very sins and that through his righteousness... We are credited righteous so that on that last day when every knee uh, would bow and every tongue confess, God does not say, I do not know you anymore, but rather, you are my child. So it is a great uh, confidence that we do have in the last couple of verses there that Paul reminds us of. Any, uh, did that kind of answer your question? Okay. Any further questions? All right, well, let's get into our Old Testament lesson. This is working out perfectly. I'm going to go through this one a little bit quicker because I really want us to look at our psalm, um, well, like I promised, first of all, at the start of the, the lesson. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 36 through 39. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, when there is nothing remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. 
I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I really want us to focus in on that last verse. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but for time's sake, I really want to make sure we get to our psalm and spend a good chunk of time on that. But that last verse, verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What a great reminder this is that not only for those who have faith in Christ are you delivered, but truly it is only God and his work that saves us. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the one we love. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. In Deuteronomy 32, we read, There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Yahweh is reminding his people that there's nothing else out there that's going to help you. There's only one God, and he kills and makes alive. And that's a very poignant reminder as we approach Holy Week that truly, when, as we prepare on Good Friday to read and worship the very fact that Christ died for our sins and then joyously on Easter morning get to proclaim, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And I won't say hallelujah, even though I just did, because I know we're still in Lent. Right? But what a great reminder that it is God who kills and makes alive. All right, let's look at our psalm. And this is going to be a little bit longer, but this is a really great uh, section, not only of the psalms, but in relation to the triumphant entry of Palm Sunday. Psalm 118, starting at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So right away, again, to kind of keep with the th focus I started with, looking at the context of this psalm, just before this, in uh, verses 10 through 14, the psalmist confesses that Israel, without God's help, will be exterminated, that God's people would be no more. And then confesses, open your gates of righteousness. If you remember how cities would work in this time, you had to have gates. It had to be a fully walled city with gates in order to protect bandits and other nations from simply walking in, stealing your stuff, stealing your sons and daughters, and walking out with them. That once inside the gate, you were safe. But those left outside the gate face great danger, and possibly even death. And so as we read, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. I'm reminded of two things. One, it is God who has made his salvation available freely to his people through faith. God is the one who opened the gates to eternal life. And two, that the righteous shall enter through it. And I hopefully in Lent don't need to remind us, but on our own account, would we consider ourselves by our own works and deeds part of that righteous that would enter through it? Well, absolutely not. We recognize that we are not righteous for our own behalf or on our own sake, but rather Christ who knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness. Continuing through verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now we're going to get in just a moment to the part that the people of Israel, those in Jerusalem, uh, proclaim to Jesus 
that they shout at Jesus, the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this psalm, the context of it, shows you what they were thinking of in that moment. That this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I bet I wouldn't be too far of a stretch to say there were quite a few people that day in the triumphant entry who thought this is just marvelous. Can you believe this? I can't wait to see what we're going to get to see because Jesus is here. The Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, and he's riding in on a donkey like he's supposed to, and we're putting palm branches down. This is going to be absolutely marvelous in our eyes. And then I think to Good Friday, I wonder how many of those same people saw Jesus hanging on the tree and thought to themselves, oh boy, this is that marvelous moment I was really waiting for. Probably not many. In fact, probably a lot of them thought, well, this is not how it's supposed to go. I know my Psalms. I know what Zechariah said. The Messiah triumphs over his enemies. And this man's hanging on a cross. And you can see how their expectations were shattered. And often when we say our expectations are shattered by God, we mean so in a very positive sense. This, however, would have been in a very downtrodden sense. Their expectations were more crushed than anything else. Because as we continue in verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now remember in verse 25 there, save us, we pray, O Lord. That is Hosanna. Hosanna. So when they proclaim to Jesus, Hosanna, you notice when they quote it, they skip the rest of verse 25. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And they had a very specific success in mind. And in verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And again, I think back to the triumphant entry and how many people, when they proclaimed Hosanna, they were thinking that very thing, that this is the day that the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then again, I wonder on Good Friday, as Jesus was crucified, how many of them thought that same thing, that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I remember as a little kid, not understanding in one holy week, asking my mom, why do we call it Good Friday? Really, shouldn't it be Bad Friday? I mean, it is dark, and the book closes at the end, and it's not happy at all. Why is it called Good Friday? And I wonder how many of those there during Holy Week, especially once Jesus is arrested and tried beaten and bloodied, thought this is a good day. That this is the day we're getting our success. As Psalm 118.25 says, this is the day that the Lord does save us as we literally prayed, as we proclaimed to him, Hosanna. Probably was not a high percentage of those who were shouting at Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord just five days earlier. Yet we know as Christians that truly Good Friday, although somber, although reflective, although a very emotional day for us, is truly a good day because Jesus did the very thing that the people proclaimed to him as he entered, the very thing they asked for. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And he would and does by hanging on the cross and then rising again 
three days later. We continue in verse 27. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, let's think of the, those two days. You have the triumphant entry of Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And how many people thought, you are my God and I will give thanks to you on Good Friday, or you are my God and I will extol you, or even, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. How many of those on Good Friday who were at the triumphant entry or had at least heard of the event thought probably the exact opposite, that God has let his people down. And yet, the greatest news of all, which we know as Christians, is that truly because of what would happen after the triumphant entry, after Palm Sunday, when the people would turn on him in a relative instant, they'd clamor for him to be beaten and hung on a cross, rather welcome back a murderer into their midst. We know that as Christians, the greatest news of all is truly we can say for that great sacrifice, that great humility, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so as we think about Palm Sunday next Sunday and our entrance into Holy Week, we need to be reminded that while for Christians Palm Sunday is truly directly connected with Easter, when we talk about a triumphant entry, it's triumphant because we know Jesus does defeat sin, death, and the devil. You can't separate the great sacrifice that he made in order for it to be a triumphant entry. And the great scorn of Good Friday that he faced in order so that we can proclaim the very thing that the psalmist says. Maybe even remember just how backwards the crowd on Palm Sunday had taken this psalm. What they thought was going to be marvelous would have in fact been a disaster. And what they thought was a disaster is in fact what we call a very good day indeed. So do we have any questions on the psalm before we wrap up? Or on any of the readings, maybe how they connect? I've hopefully tried to uh, connect it back to John 12. But All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we truly do thank you for the great sacrifice that you made. And we confess to you that truly your steadfast love endures forever, that we confess that in faith given to us by your Holy Spirit. As we approach Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry, Good Friday, and the glorious reality of Easter morning, let us never forget just how truly good and steadfast your love for us is. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.